Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and uh, somewhere in the first part of the service, I'm just adjusting my mic, uh, I noticed that our plants are here instead of here, and that can just be a metaphor for the way this morning has gone. So um, it's good to see all of you. It's good to be worshiping together. This is the second Sunday in the season of Lent, a season that is 40 days plus Sundays of preparation for Easter. And this year during Lent, we're preaching just the normal Lent lectionary readings that are assigned every Sunday, but we're preaching those through this very particular lens. We're using these readings as this window to explore how we listen and look for God, how we hear God's voice, how we recognize his voice when he's speaking. And I've been mulling over this week's passages ever since we started planning this sermon series a couple months ago. And early on in the Google Doc that Katie and I share where we plan these things out, I wrote this question somewhere in the notes. I wrote, how does Abraham know what he knows? How does he know that it's God who's speaking to him? Or in the words from the Nicodemus story, how does Abraham hear heavenly things? And it's a question that I really hoped I would be able to answer in this sermon. And as soon as I asked it, as soon as I typed it out, I also could tell it was a question that was coming from a really deep place in me. If I'm honest, a place with a lot of caution and a place with some fear. So I think I'm often scared that I have heard wrong or that I will hear wrong. Maybe I've made a mess of my life. Maybe I've misused this pulpit or this stole or that I will someday. And maybe you share that fear, or maybe you've been on the other side of that fear. Maybe you have been on the receiving end of harmful things said or done in the name of hearing God. I know that I have been. And those kinds of experiences can make us feel uncomfortable with this whole idea of hearing God, of listening. It can feel a little bit dangerous, and it might make us a little skeptical, and a little bit fearful. Well, spoiler alert today, I am not going to answer the question, how does Abraham know what he knows? Because the deeper I got into preparing for this sermon, the deeper I got into these texts, the more I realized I can't answer that because God doesn't answer that. And in fact, as much as I don't want to admit it, I actually am kind of left with the conclusion that hearing God is a little bit of a risky proposition. And that realization puts us in good company with the people in today's readings that I'm going to focus on, Abraham and Nicodemus. These aren't stories that get woven together very often. But neither of these men, when they hear God, is exactly trying to hear God. And for both of these men, what God says is disruptive. It calls them out to somewhere a little bit dangerous. And yet, in spite of that, they desperately need to hear God's voice. The world desperately needed them to hear God's voice. And we desperately need to hear God's voice more than anything. We need to hear God. So, Lord, help us hear you this morning. Not me. Help us hear you. So let's look at Abraham first. 
Abraham hears this call from God to leave his homeland. It says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. So what do we see Abraham doing to listen, to attune his ears, to hear God's voice when it speaks? He's actually doing absolutely nothing. And in fact, just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 11, it seems like scripture has declared Abraham's story over. That chapter is this long genealogy of people who descended from Noah and the ark. The Tower of Babel is in there, and they're just generations of generations of descendants. And then at the end of the line, we read that Abraham's wife is childless, that she's unable to conceive, and that Abraham's father dies. And then chapter 11 just ends. And it seems like this family's storyline is also ending because there are no more descendants. Everyone in this genealogy has either died or will die in this desert. And then we open up chapter 12, what we read today. And one of my favorite Old Testament scholars is a man named Walter Brueggemann. And he says that this turn from chapter 11 to chapter 12 is one of the most important ones in Genesis, probably the most important one in the whole of the Old Testament, because it's where we turn from the history of the curse, the history of human sin and isolation and violence and punishment that's been set in motion from the first chapters of Genesis. We turn from that history to the history of the blessing, this history that is going to wind itself out for the whole rest of Scripture up until today. And what is it at the beginning of chapter 12 that brings this turn? Now the Lord spoke to Abram. What brings about change is the voice of God. God speaks. God speaks into this story that looks like it's over. God speaks to these people who aren't listening for him, he speaks into human powerlessness and human hopelessness, the very end and limit of what humans can do for their own story. And our Romans passage put it this way. It says that the God in whom Abraham believed gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. The voice of God is always calling dead things to life and new things into existence. And the voice doesn't speak to some person who has shown himself deserving, to a person who's even listening, to a person who has some innate potential and power within himself. Abraham has done nothing at this point in the story to commend himself to God. He's just another name in this long genealogy that's going nowhere. God speaks from his own power, from his own freedom, from his own goodness. He speaks out of who God is. And the voice of God calls Abram and Sarah out of this dead-end story into this promise of unimaginable blessing. And this voice of God also asks something of them. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. They have to leave what they know and go where they don't know. And if they stay where they are, then life stays the same and familiar, but their story will end. They can't conceive. It's the end of the line. 
If they leave, they risk everything, but they risk in hope because God has promised them new life and blessing. And so they risk it. They trust God. They go out into the land of Canaan, this land inhabited by hostile people, and they go slowly. I love the phrase that it uses. They journey by stages. They'll go a little bit deeper into enemy territory, and then they'll stop and build an altar and remember that God has promised them something. And then they go a little bit further, and then they stop, and a little bit further. And Brueggemann, who I mentioned earlier, writes this about this journey by stages into the land of their enemies. He says, The promise of God is never easy to believe and practice. It must always be believed and practiced in the midst of those who practice more effective and more attractive ways. And there are a million more effective and attractive ways in our world, too. That's part of why we take on disciplines in Lent, to help us give up or turn away from those more attractive and effective ways to resist their pull so that we can hear and follow this God of promise. So what do we learn about hearing from God in this passage? Well, we learn something about what the voice of God sounds like. We learn that it sounds like grace, like newness, like promise. We also learn that it sounds risky. It asks us to leave what we know, to go where we don't know, to believe and to practice in the midst of those who are practicing more effective and attractive ways. And we also learn here where we can expect to hear that voice. We can expect to hear it basically where we least expect it, at the limits of our capacity, in our need and our fear, in our dead ends, in our hopelessness, in death, and things that are not. And we learn that the response to this voice is trust. So let's turn to Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and the text doesn't tell us why, but we can kind of infer, since we know that he's a Pharisee and a leader, that probably given his status and his identity in the community, maybe he doesn't feel entirely safe coming to talk to Jesus during the day. And he comes actually praising Jesus as a teacher sent by God. He says, God is definitely with you. And Jesus, in response, just keeps talking about these impossibilities. First he says, nobody can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus, quite understandably, asks, how? How can anyone be born after growing old? Can anyone enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? It's a totally rational question, but it is rarely the kind of question that Jesus answers. It's rarely the kind of thing God is talking about. God didn't tell Abram how he would bless the world through him, how Sarah would conceive, or even where they were going. God's voice is very rarely a how voice very rarely an explaining voice, no matter how much we might wish to make it one. Because if God is God, he is this mystery beyond our comprehension. He is beyond our capacity to pin him down and squeeze him into something that we can understand and tame and control. The voice of God calls dead things to life and new things into being 
and it beckons us into this newness of life that's beyond what we can understand. So Jesus doesn't explain how to Nicodemus. He just doubles down on the impossibility thing. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Being born of water and the spirit, what Jesus talks about here, has been interpreted by the church over the millennia to mean baptism. That mysterious act of God's grace where we are plunged into the death and the resurrection of Jesus and born into the community of God, into this new life that he's opened up for us. And again, Nicodemus asks, how? And again, Jesus won't tell him. Instead, he invites him to another impossibility. He says, if I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says something really strange. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is talking about his ascension into heaven and by extension, his death and resurrection, as though it's already happened. He actually does this a lot in John's Gospel. He doesn't deal with time in this linear way. He just sort of collapses his descent to humanity, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and the story of Moses and the serpent and the whole narrative of the Old Testament just into one lump-together, cohesive reality. And it's hard for our brains to hold that together. But it reminds us of something really important, that hearing heavenly things that Jesus talks about, it's not about getting some vague or fleeting impression, a whim from God. It's always binding us to this particular story of how God has acted and is acting to redeem the world through real people crystallized in the real human being, the crucified and resurrected Jesus. So hearing God is always calling us to believe and to fuse our lives more and more with this reality. And this is how we have eternal life. John's Gospel uses this term a lot. In fact, Jesus says eternal life twice right here. It's one of John's favorite phrases. And he doesn't mean eternal so much as the idea of never-ending, although it does mean that, but it's more about the quality or the type of life that Jesus is promising. It's a life that's contrasted with the life that he's beckoning people out of. Eternal life is heavenly life. It's kingdom of God life. It's this spirit-born life in us. And so having eternal life, hearing heavenly things, seeing the kingdom of God, being born of the Spirit, these are all different ways that Jesus is describing this new reality. And just like God did to Abraham, Jesus invites Nicodemus to see beyond the dead ends and the impossibilities that are right before his eyes, to see beyond the how questions that have no conceivable answers. And he invites Nicodemus to believe. 
to trust that this Jesus is calling him to this impossible newness of life. And this is where the conversation ends. We don't know what happens next. We're not told what happens when Nicodemus goes back into the night. But there are these clues that perhaps Nicodemus sets out on his own sort of pilgrimage, like Abraham. There are these clues that perhaps he has chosen to trust this voice and to go out into enemy territory. Because it's not safe for Nicodemus to trust this voice in his position. And we see him popping up in the Gospel of John a few other times in ways that suggest that maybe he does. We see him defending Jesus to the Pharisees, saying, give this man a fair hearing. And then we see him at Jesus' crucifixion, giving Jesus the dignity of a burial. So perhaps, like Abraham, we're seeing Nicodemus journey by stages, going a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper into this life of faith that Jesus has invited him to. So the voice of God, which is Jesus in this Nicodemus story, sounds a lot like the voice of God in the Abraham story. Because again, God is speaking into the limits of human understanding, into the places of human impossibility. And again, that voice is calling people to new life, life in the Spirit. But in this passage from John, that life has a new clarity. It's a call to come closer and deeper into the life of Jesus, to follow the voice of God in faith. So to go back to my original question in the margins, in my notes, how does Abraham know what he knows? I don't know how. All I know is that Abraham listened, and he believed, and he took the first step. Abraham believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And this God is still speaking to us. And so I pray that we would hear his voice, and follow him. Now enter our time of silence.